Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. You know, um, I've always emphasized the fact that I am not a what 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 one might call a professional broadcaster, um, but I have certain natural skills that just become readily apparent from time to time on this podcast. And so, I've decided that the the key here is uh, to invite someone into the octagon who is worthy of my skills that, or I might actually have to try this time because I'm a famous underachiever who likes to say I didn't even try. Um, and in that respect, I've gotten someone to come on here who is, let's just face it. He's old. <laughs> he's really old. I looked it up. He is, he was born a full nine days before me in the same city I was born. Um, and you may have heard of him from such after school films as, uh, zinc and you partners in freedom. Uh, but he's also occasionally on this uh, network called CNN. He's a novelist. He's an anchor, longstanding uh, journalist in, quote unquote, this town. Uh, is my friend Jake Tapper. Jake, welcome back to The Remnant. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. Hey, speaking of after school specials, did you ever see The Wave? Do you remember The Wave? Um, probably, but I need more information. So The Wave is based on a true story about a teacher in California, I believe, who tried to teach his kids, his students at the school about fascism. Uh-huh. And the way he did it was by creating a fake cult where people joined The Wave. And then at the end, he unveils their leader to them. And the leader, I'm just a spoiler alert, the leader is a film of Adolf Hitler. And he is he has revealed to them how fascism can take root under the spirit of belonging and unity. It's a really interesting um, huh, I, experiment and TV movie. And I, I don't know about the production values. It might be as bad as the, you know, the girl that did LSD and jumped off the school roof one episode of whatever. But wasn't that Helen Hunt? Um, it might've might been, yeah. um, but in any case, uh, it's worth checking out, especially as we're watching a whole bunch of our f- former friends and, and, uh, colleagues, uh, join the wave. Um, yeah, yeah. All right. So we'll come back to that because <laughs> I have views on many of these things, but the, your handlers, um, Ooh. at CNN yes. agreed to take off your pain collar for the purpose of uh, talking about this new thing that you're doing. And it's, I think we'll have things to talk about here. You're hosting some a new series, on a CNN original series called United States of Scandal. I'm not just hosting it. I'm an executive producer as well. I've been involved in this. That's why they took off the pain collars. Yes. It's a darkly comedic look at some of the wildest political scandals in the U.S. And you speak to a lot of the main characters, including Rod Blagojevich, Jim McGreevy, Valerie Plame, etc. So. Yes. Who's the who? Are you, who are you going after the first one? Who are you profiling on the first one? The first episode uh, aired Sunday night, um, and uh, actually the first two episodes. And the first and the first one was about Rod Blagojevich, mm-hmm. and the second one was about Mark Sanford. Um, and we try to take a deeper look, uh, in addition to kind of in, in addition to interviewing people who had an inside view of it, whether it is the most inside view, Rod Blagojevich's view, uh, or um, we interviewed Mark Sanford's like top longtime aide who'd never done an interview before, uh, giving his inside view perspective, as well as his communications director and others talking about that scandal. And one of the things that we try to get into is just like the deeper significance of these scandals. Rod Blagojevich, for example, is in his view, it's about the criminalization of politics. It's about the corrupt campaign finance system. Where did he cross the line, uh, et cetera. Uh, for Mark Sanford, it's about uh, personas, political personas. I'm making it sound intellectual because I'm trying to appeal to you, Jonah. But 
for people who are not so inclined, it's also just, these are also just fun yarns and they're very well produced. And, uh, and, uh, yeah, they, they did pretty well when we aired them Sunday night, those first two, um, we, uh, we, you know, we won the demo against Fox nice. and MSNBC, which is uh, not insignificant. And other episodes coming up, McGreevy, Spitzer, Edwards, we had for Edward, for the Edwards episode, we interviewed, um, Riel Hunter, his girlfriend, uh, we have the Valerie Plame affair, which is a whole. That's kind of complicated. Anyway, it's it's a uh, it's fun. So and and pe- can people catch them on streaming later? Just so for they have not been posted on uh, CNN Max yet, uh-huh. uh, but they will be. And but they can uh, they will. I'm sure they will be re-airing and and the like because once something does well, CNN will air it again, et cetera, et cetera. But the the it's Sunday nights at nine. It's not just a cable rehash of a story you already know. It's like stuff you don't know and trying to put it in the context of, all right, we're in 2024. What was the significance of this event from 2009? Was there one, et cetera? So, uh, yeah, I was invited to the screening thing and alas, I was on vacation and couldn't make it. Um, otherwise I would have been there, but I will say I'm disappointed, even though it doesn't actually merit doing an episode on it. But do you remember the Josh Steiner episode? Josh. So it's it's totally forgettable and it's totally unfair to him at this point because he's like a grown up human being who's like he was one of the last guys in contention to buy the Washington Post or take over the Washington Post or something like that. And he's with Bloomberg Media, super rich guy, hedge fund, whatever. God bless. But uh, in the 90s, when there was that resolution trust scandal thing about what the Justice Department knew about Whitewater. I mean, it got all really convoluted. I was trying to remind myself when I realized that you're coming on today, I reminded myself of the story because it was opaque to me. Oh my God. I have a vague, now I have a vague memory of him because I remember like Barbara Boxer coming to his defense. Yeah. A lot of people came to his defense, right? He was one of like the wonder kids of the Clinton administration. He was the chief of staff of the treasury department. And he's the guy who claimed that he lied to his diary um, which I just, I always love that, right? It's very much like the, the, um, what's his name? The tiny former commerce secretary or labor secretary, Robert Reich, right? Where he just kind of said, well, that's the way I remembered it. And that's all right. It's like these people who, you know, uh, come up with these novel explanations, but the, the telling detail was, remember the columnist, Roger Rosenblatt, it, Ruth Schlitt did a profile of all these wonder kids in the Clinton administration. And at the height of this scandal for Josh Steiner, he called Rosenblatt, who had been a family friend, and when they were little kids, Rosenblatt, when he was a little kid, Rosenblatt would sing him the Felix Cat theme song. And Steiner, in the middle of the scandal, called Rosenblatt, said, could you please sing me the Felix the Cat theme song? Wow. Oh, my God. <laughs> and for years now, me and my friends, whenever we're under a lot of stress and we want to give them the hard time, we'll be Felix like, Felix the Cat. Do you want me to sing the Felix the Cat song to you? <laughs> so, anyway, well, that's the only reason I bring it up. Well, so. you know, since the first, the, by the way, I just looked it up in the episode coming up this Sunday is the John Edwards episode. And like oh, sitting down with Riel Hunter and having her tell that story is really interesting. And also just the profoundly amazing fact of that John Edwards was trying to get away with cheating on his cancer stricken wife with this other woman, impregnating her, getting her and his top aide to say that it was the top aide's baby and all of this stuff while he was running for president of the United States is just so head blowingly amazing. And and what is John Edwards doing now? Laying low. I think he's back to practicing law. You know, they tried to, they, they tried him and, and he, and it was, he was ultimately acquitted. I mean, I think the jury was hung um, for campaign finance violations. One of the things that's really interesting about the series is you realize how difficult it is to prosecute people for the scandalous behavior, whether it is, well, it wasn't difficult for Rod Blagojevich, but for the people going after Rod Blagojevich, but Edwards, uh, Pat Fitzgerald, um, you know, who went after and, you know, who investigated the, the Valerie Plame leak. That's one of the most untold stories is, I mean, although conservatives, I know, know it well, but like the idea that he knew from very early on who the leaker was, that it was Dick Armitage at the State Department, and then still did this two-year investigation. And ultimately, the only person ever cr- tried for anything was Scooter Libby for perjury, and that was based on him and Tim Russert having a disagreement about what was brought up in a conversation years before. So anyway, I digress. Yeah. Now, I will say, like, I, I thought Bush was on the wrong side of the Scooter Libby question about you know commuting 
or pardoning or whatever the final question was. You're not alone. Mr. Cheney feels the same way. I gotta say, I, having been subpoenaed and deposed for the Dominion lawsuit, like as, as, as you're probably more aware than I am, Washington, in fact, the CNN green room is often full of these peripheral characters from scandals who get called in because they're witnesses to something or they're a fact witness for this or whatever. And they got a lawyer up. And I have this like profound, newfound respect and sympathy for these bit, because I was a very bit character in the Dominion lawsuit. I mean, yeah. I really had nothing for them. But I had to lawyer up in all sorts of ways for, to protect the dispatch about revealing sources, and it got really complicated. And my first meeting with the lawyer was a great lawyer. Liked him a lot. I did the math, though. I could have sat there lighting one $10 bill with the other for the hour and come out saving money. <laughs> and it really is astounding. Um, uh, yes, I mean, the degree to which this happens in Washington uh, and that one of the things that's amazing also about the, about the Plame Affair is this all began because of a green room encounter. Mm -hmm. Well, tell us the story about it, right? So Robert no Novak, the Prince of Darkness, conservative columnist, uh, is at Meet the Press. And Joe Wilson is there. He is just, and he is out there with his op-ed and he's talking about, um, to Novak's recollection, he's just talking about how much better the Clinton NSC was, the National Security Council was, than the Bush NSC. That's Novak. And Novak says in his memoir that he thought, quote, what an asshole. And then later he has a meeting or phone call with Dick Armitage, who's the number two at the State Department under Colin Powell. This is uh, in 2003, all of this. And um, he's like, why did why did you guys send why did the Bush administration send Wilson to Africa to check on this Niger uranium yellow cake story. And, and Armitage, this is according to um, Novak's recollection, just says like in an offhand kind of way, oh, that was the CIA. His wife works for the CIA on the counterproliferation desk. So ultimately, the, what happened was, even though there were other people in the Bush administration that leaked her name, Scooter Libby, Ari Fleischer, et cetera, et cetera, um, the original leak was the product of this world that we live in, this green room world of people talking. And it wasn't that that one leak does not appear apparently to be part of any conspiracy to necessarily discredit Valerie. Which was the charge all over the place, right? I mean, people lost their minds saying that this was an attempt basically to silence the, narr the narrative, yeah, the narrative is the Bush administration was lying us into war and Joe Wilson was this noble man who told the truth and then the Bush administration to get revenge leaked his wife's name. That is not the full, whole, complete story and actual truth of what happened. What, hap what actually happened is a much more complicated story um, I'm not saying it, it's any more flattering to anybody, including the Bush administration or the media, but what with the actual story is much more interesting and nuanced, and hopefully that's what we'll get to. This raises an interesting question. So one of the overarching themes of uh, this fully functional podcast is this idea that um, people get the thing, have, have it backwards about Washington most of the time, that the, all these people who particularly on social media, but this goes back a long way, who thinks who think Washington is full of hyper-competent people doing conspiratorial, terrible <laughs> things, right? When in reality, yeah. most of the time, nobody knows what the hell's going on. Yeah. Nobody, even if they do know what's going on, they have very little control of events outside of, you know, basically their email account, right? They can't, like, manipulate you know, four degrees of, you know, of, 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 of chess moves ahead about anything. Most of the people are well-intentioned, but not necessarily incompetent. Some are incompetent, yeah. um, but some are just not, there's no level of competence that can let you manipulate all of the political players and factors involved in these things and anticipate people's reactions to things. Yeah. And 
And so I'm just kind of curious, like, how often do you find when you're doing your whole, you know, run to the phone booth with your Clark Kent hat on uh, stuff, where you actually find that it really is a simple tale of sinister people doing sinister things deliberately and with competence, right? It, it, w- the, with the grand exception, of course, being Donald Trump in the election, which was yeah, for sure, 100% sinister people doing sinister things for sinister reasons and a lot of it playing out right in front of our faces and some of it not. Um, but that is the, you know, a huge exception. Generally speaking, people are motivated by doing what they think is best. A lot of people, the people who opposed the Iraq war and the people who supported the Iraq war both thought that they were doing right. They thought, you know, like, and you can set, you can believe in the worst in your opponents all you want if you're a political player, but often the truth is, not that most people that you're dealing with are not Marjorie Taylor Greene. You know, most most people are 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 not. There 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 is a degree to which a lot of people in the, the, the today's political world are a combination of stupid and 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 mean. Um, but most people, I think, are not. Most people are cowardly, trying to get by, trying to do, you know, doing making compromise A so that they can be around to do good for you know topic B. Yeah, so I used to have this theory back in my younger, more exuberant, more team player days on the right, um, that the corruption of green rooms was a really pernicious thing. <laughs> um, because what you would get is, and I, I got to remember my formative experience of speaking of scandals, my formative experience of being thrown in the deep end of the pool of green rooms was the Clinton Lewinsky stuff, right? Where, Mine too, buddy. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, where I had done some media, you know, prior as a little wonky think tank kid. But then all of a sudden, I'm on Larry King, like four nights a month, kind of thing. And Seattle, you're on the air. <laughs> um, right, it's the, it's the I, I get one of these microphones in front of my face, and I just we can talk freely about Larry King at this point, right? Um, I didn't know him very well. Nice enough guy, you know, whatever. Yeah. But like, do you remember the infomercials for GLH number nine? No, it's a- GLH stands for Great Looking Hair. Oh, and it was that uh, spray paint. Hair to oh, cover boy. I've stuff seen that, up. I've seen that used in green room, in uh, in makeup rooms, not in yes, yeah, yeah. Um, which for listeners, if you hadn't guessed, makeup rooms are usually very adjacent to, to green rooms. By the way, that that stuff works. It makes it look like people have hair where they don't have hair. Yeah, although I I think HDTV. Oh yeah, was a big blow to the end uh, to the fake hair industry, right. um, which it may never have recovered. And um, but anyway, I, I would get. I would go to these green rooms and Lanny Davis, right? Remember, you know, sure. Lanny Davis. I just had him on my show last week to promote the scandal series just because he, he is the quintessential scandal whisperer. He's the, he's the one that can give you good advice. Right. Or, or that's the business that he's in. Yeah. Um, we can have a debate about whether the advice is good, but, um, like Lanny and I'll, I'm happy to say this to his face. I get along with him fine. Everyone gets along with him fine in the green room. That's the thing that I always thought was so corrupting was that he's a flatterer before the cameras get on. And then the cameras go on and he's like, I am just saddened and disappointed that someone with an integrity like you would say something like that. Right. And you, over time you were like, you don't want to piss off these people. You don't want to offend these people. You want, you know, you, you want to, and there's this corrupting thing that comes from, hanging out in green rooms. And I still think that exists. And there are still creatures at every network who you can always tell there's a certain kind of Washington creature who, after he does his TV hit, doesn't go home. Yeah. Um, I mean, you don't see it much because you're off on the set on the, the full set, time. Yeah. But like at Fox, there were people who had a hit at like 1030 in the morning and you'd still see them there at like two in the afternoon holding court, giving out business cards or whatever. And anyway, I now I've kind of changed my mind a little bit about it. There's still the problems with green rooms, but it's the only place left, at least now that I'm at CNN, where you can actually have like legitimate conversations with people who are way outside your bubble. Yeah. And that's a really sorely missing thing these days. Although I would say, I think that when you come on my show uh, and you're on a panel whether it's a two-person or a four-person panel, generally speaking, I think that you are having conversations with like, you know, for example, Nayira Hawk, who you guys disagree on a lot, 
but you're outside your comfort zone. I'm not outside your comfort zone. You, you guys disagree, but you, you're you doing so in a respect of, respectful yeah, way. Yeah. Now, maybe the conversations are even more intense and more candid in the green room. Well, you, you, get, you get to ask Democratic people stuff that they won't say on TV about Biden's age, about all sorts of things, right? About... And they get to ask me all sorts of things because, like, it's amazing how many people have these views of Fox where they, you know, they just wonder, you know, they, they think it's like just strewn with, I don't know, like bloody chainsaws and 1920s surgical tables and torture chambers or something. It's like, no, it's not quite like that, you know? And anyway, it's, it's an interesting exercise that, that I kind of, you know, I kind of value in a way that I, 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 I used to have a straight, Green rooms are seductive. Stay out of them. You know, get in, get out as quickly as you can because you'll get you'll 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 grow as a conservative. And now I'm I have got nothing. All my bridges are burnt, so I just feel free to <laughs> to whatever. Anyway, um, you were telling me on set a while back when you were planning this show or you're wrapping it up, the first one that Bogoyevich is completely unrepentant completely. about what he did. One hundred percent doesn't think he did anything wrong. Uh, he says in the show, uh, I didn't do anything wrong. That doesn't mean I wasn't a idiot, mm-hmm. but he doesn't think he did anything wrong. And, you know, I think that the evidence suggests otherwise, but we let Blagojevich, you know, we hand over the microphone and like, tell us your story. And we let him make his case. Uh, I find some of it persuasive, most of it not, but it is, I think, interesting to like, hear his point of view. The most repentant to me uh, and this is just a value judgment, um, seems Jim McGreevy, who we interviewed. Um, and, and what was McGreevy's scandal again? I'm his scandal remember. was that, well, first there are two. The one that everybody remembers is that he was a gay man who was living the life of a straight man. He was married, married with kids and the governor. And then like he comes out and admits he's a gay man. And he become, he became this poster child for, uh, an anachronistic view of gays in public life. Mm-hmm. But the actual scandal was that he had hired his lover. Uh, he was like an Israeli security yeah, consultant or no, something? No, he was just an Israeli. He, I mean, he was just an Israeli. I don't think he had any security consultant uh, expertise in particular, certainly not to be the Homeland Security Advisor for the governor of New Jersey in the years after 9-11. He was not up to that task. And he had hired him and put him on the payroll. That was the actual scandal. Although, you know, McGreevy and, and the world would rather you prefer to remember, would, would prefer that you remember scandal number one. Would, isn't it horrible that he was a gay man that had to live a lie? And yes, it is. But that wasn't the actual scandal. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's something sort of Tom Wolfie about, you know, the retreat to high-minded victim narratives about identity politics when you did something corrupt, right? right? (laughs) um, It's sort of like, uh, you know, wherever you come down on the Fannie Willis stuff, you know, the retreat to they're coming after me because I'm a black woman is a very familiar PR strategy, whether you, whether she means it sincerely or not. Um, Like the New York times doing this thing about how this story is very familiar to black women. Well, like I, that, that kind of spin always kinds of bothers me a little bit because presupposes that the factual aspects of the accusations of Fannie Wells can't be true. And it has to be this larger sort of oppressor oppressed, you know, victim thing. I, I, I don't disagree with your, you. I mean, I will say that it is true that Trump goes after critics who are female with, it seems like an even more for sure. Um, vitriolic kind of bloodlust and women of color even more so. I mean, the comments he has made about white white male journalists who have challenged him versus the Abby Phillips or Yamishas or who, you know, it's just, he, you know, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. No, no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, but, I get that. Yeah, That's 100%, totally 100%. Fine. Like, actually, I was thinking when I was watching Bonnie Wallace's uh, testimony the other day, and like, who knows how this all plays out. I mean, she was giving very confident testimony suggesting that what she did, you know, that there was no actual inappropriate behavior in terms of public funds and this and that. We don't know what is going to emerge. I mean, if she, if everything she was saying was true and there's no evidence to the contrary, that's, that's, 
I mean, whatever. I'm, I know better than to say how it's going to end up this early in, in the phase of, the, of this particular controversy. But I was thinking, you know, we haven't had a good sex scandal for, you know, with where the woman is the public official, like in a long, long time in this country. And I'm already thinking about season two of United States of Scandal, mm-hmm. like, you know, because like we have literally we have weapons of mass destruction slash Valerie Plame slash all that. And then we have the graft of Blagojevich. And then we have four lusts um, for these six episodes. Edwards, McGreevy, Spitzer, and Sanford. And like, that's a lot of lust. Um, and we, we just don't get one with a woman protagonist. So, you know, we'll see what happens with her. But if, if everything she said was a lie, that would be a great one for second sec, season two. I'm not holding my breath. We'll see what happens. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their client, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash remnant. That's tnusa.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. It's just like you load the app and it says, what pictures do you want in your frame? And you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. So I, I didn't mean to steer us off of the Blagojevich thing, although I think actually you you steered us off. I, I just want to uh, just circle back on it. I so I have some sympathy for Blagojevich's position, but I just I'm not exactly sure I'm understanding what he claims his position is. But so like, I mean, you've been to Afghanistan, you you know Afghanistan better than I do, and all that kind of stuff. But I know a lot of people who did development work there, or State Department stuff, and all that. And the and it's a big part of my last book is this argument that. What we call corruption in the developed democratic West is actually the way human beings have done business for thousands of years, right? And you tell Afghans, oh, no, you have to put this contract out for bid. And they're like, what are you talking about? Of course, I'm going to give it to my cousin. You know, you're going to, what if, what if someone from that tribe gets, gets this bid? You know, that's crazy. And so what we call corruption is actually the natural way of doing things. And I think that we sometimes look at places like Chicago or Philly or New York um, and have this expectation that they're further along in democratic development than they actually are. And they actually like, remember that LA story six months, a year ago about these the public uh, Hispanic the lawmakers telling, ter- saying terrible thing, racial things oh, and yeah. bigoted things quietly, whatever. And, I love the story, not because I like people saying terrible things about other people, but because it's a machine run liberal city and 
this is the way ethnic groups in politics talk about each other for 200 years in America, right? And it's not necessarily that it's bigoted. It's more like, you know, the blacks want this or the Jews are going after that and New York City contracting or whatever. And it's just factional talk. And so I'm kind of wondering if Blagojevich's crime isn't that he tried to sell a Senate seat, is that he didn't do it in a sophisticated way, right? I mean, like Bill Clinton wouldn't be on tape saying, I can't give this thing away for free, but he'd probably sell an Arkansas Senate seat if he could. So there are two, there are two things on that. Um, first of all, his argument is that what I told you before, like, you know, I didn't commit any crimes, but I, did, I didn't say I wasn't a fucking idiot. And there is a point in the, in the show where I say, like, why didn't you just talk about, you knew the FBI was going after you. Why didn't you just talk about these things more in a more sophisticated way? You know, we want to give the Senate seat to whoever deserves it. And separately, I don't want to be the governor anymore. And I would like to find something that I can do. But those two things are completely separate. And like, you know, you can say things like that. So he said, he's, you know, he said, he granted my point. But beyond that uh, are two points. One, he had a team of fundraisers who were corrupt. And the, and his argument is, well, I didn't know, I didn't know that. And, you know, they, they had problems and, you know, oh, and, and like they were, these guys were going to anybody who wanted anything from the city and basically saying, pay up, you know, it's the, it's a Ray Liotta in, in uh, Goodfellas, F- mm-hmm. you pay me like that. Mm-hmm. So that's one. And like his downfall comes when a, a woman who runs a, a children's hospital, who's trying to get permits, um, does a sting operation, wears a wire and gets these fundraisers, his fundraisers in trouble. So that's one, you know, and he, he pleads in innocent and ignorance and okay. The other thing is, and he compares himself, he brings up two things. One, Eisenhower getting uh, Earl Warren, Governor Earl Warren's support as uh, in the Republican convention in 52, uh, Earl Warren, governor of California, and he promises his delegates to Eisenhower in exchange for Eisenhower making him not just a Supreme Court justice, but the chief justice of the Supreme Court, which happens mm-hmm. a year later. So that's one thing he compares himself to. And again, we let him give these history yeah. lessons. And the other one is, you know, horse trading is part of our life. Look how, you know, Abraham Lincoln got the Emancipation Proclamation passed. Okay. And I challenged him a little on that because I'm like, you're not comparing. No, that. man. I mean, Blagojevich, Eisenhower, Lincoln, those names trip off the tongue altogether perfectly. So <laughs> what Eisenhower did, what was not illegal, what Lincoln did was not illegal, but what Blagojevich did was, and one of mm-hmm. the reasons was, was because he was very directly trying to find something that he, that he would personally benefit from in a financial way post-governorship because remember he wanted to resign as governor because, because the walls were closing in on him because of this FBI investigation into these corrupt fundraisers of his. Um, and he wanted a lucrative job, uh, whether it was with a a nonprofit or whatever. So he was very definitely trying to quid pro quo the Senate seat, which is different than, you know, Lincoln engaging in horse trading to get slaves freed or even Eisenhower, um, you know, in a, and there's no paper trail of this, but Eisenhower saying, okay, Earl Warren, you know, fine, you know, and, and putting a governor uh, who is a lawyer on the, on the Supreme Court as a chief justice, that might not have been the best thing Eisenhower ever did. And certainly fan, people who are not fans of the Warren court would, would, would argue that he, you know, that was corrupt, but it's not like he wasn't qualified. Right. And it's not like Eisenhower personally benefited. Well, I mean, he, like, he did from the delegates, but yeah, but like, I mean, like Blagojevich is right about politics being about horse trading and deal cutting. It's just not supposed to be about personal enrichment. Right. Right. This and this is the argument that Menendez made in his first corruption trial, which he was acquitted of in a in a mistrial, I think, which is he has he has a friend who is really rich and has business before the state. And the friend benefits from being friends with the governor or the senator from New Jersey and the friend and he and the friend are also friends and they go on vacation together, et cetera, et cetera. And where's the line now? We'll see what we'll see what happens in the second case. But look, it's the same thing that happened to Governor uh, was it Bob McDonnell in Virginia. Yeah. Like 
there is a whole bunch of this stuff where prosecutors go after politicians for crossing the line and ultimately the politicians get off whether the whether whether the conviction is overturned as happened with governor mcdonnell or they're not found guilty as happened with senator ted stevens i think right mm-hmm. he was, wasn't he ultimately acquitted even after he was that was a pretty outrageous case yeah so i mean there's yeah. a lot of this uh, and a lot of people claiming the criminalization of politics and the truth of the matter is that our laws are vague so i mean but that said i mean i don't buy Blagojevich's explanation, but we allow him to make it. My favorite thing, I think I might have said this on your show, but like my favorite thing about the Menendez thing is when, you know, I was saying earlier about retreating to sort of identity politics kind of arguments, right? So he tried to do this thing where he said, yeah, being a Latino. I I was a Latino, his family's history in Cuba, uh, but that's why I had these stockpiles of cash because I knew I needed to be able to, you know, that the government could take my money. And the thing I love about it is, he was right. The government took his money. <laughs> the government went into his house and took his money. And he was criminal. You know, you shouldn't have had it, but like, you know, they took his gold bars. By the way, um, somebody asked me why all of the, the scandals I have in season one of the show uh, are between 2000 and 2015. Um, and there, there are a couple of reasons. One of them is after Trump came along in 2015, like it's really everything changed. And, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. but beyond that, I actually wanted to do Abscam and some of the players from Abscam, that's a bribery case for those who don't know, bribery case involving members of Congress. They made a movie American Hustle out of it with uh, Bradley Cooper and the one of the Batman, uh, I forget, um, Christian Bale. And um, anyway, I wanted to do that. And Ozzie Myers, who was my Congressman at the time uh, as a little boy growing up in Philadelphia and was one of the Abscam uh, scammers and went to prison, I believe, uh, is alive and well. And we were talking to him about it. And then he went to prison for something else. So we had to cancel the ab scam episode. He went to prison for, he was trying to fix a judicial election in Philadelphia. And, and, uh, but hopefully when he gets out, we can uh, revisit. I don't know. Like, I mean, it's been 25 years since I was a television producer, but you know, prison interviews are just good TV. Like, you know, he's setting up in the cafeteria kind of thing. It's worth thinking about. I really grew up in an area uh, in Philly, South Philadelphia, uh, the actual neighborhood's Queen Village. It's kind of like right between posh Center City and gritty South Philly is this little area called Queen Village. And like so many people that represented me and my family growing up were, were ultimately went to prison. It's just, a, it's a, uh, the names that won't mean anything to, except for the five Philadelphians listening, Buddy C and Franny, Vince Fumo. I mean, like <laughs> it's, we really had a rogues gallery. You must be so proud. Um, you entered Trump into the conversation here, so uh, I introduced Trump. So let's do this. Are we ever going to be able to talk about like scandalous behavior and it matter anymore? I think so. It does seem like there's a carve out for him among his supporters uh, and those who feign supporting him in order to preserve their jobs as Republican officials. But I don't think um, I don't think it's transferable in the same way that his when he's not on the ballot, his people don't turn out. Um, I don't think it's transferable. Uh, and, and, and one of the ways you can look at it is look at uh, George Santos, you know, and Santos was expelled. And that's a very rare thing. And he was expelled by a Republican House. And, um, you know, so there, I mean, you know, it took it took Santos to having committed fraud against the grandmother of, you know, a Republican congressman, Max Miller. But that said, there, there still are standards, and um, I don't think he's changed the rules for everybody. I think he's changed the rules for himself. I think he's provide. He didn't invent the "I'm sticking, I'm not resigning" thing. Clinton did it, as you know. David Vitter did it. Like it is a way to do it. Uh, Al Franken, in the view of many Democrats, should not have resigned, and I, I do think that he could have stayed and fought and or said like I'm going to learn from this experience. Blah blah blah. But I mean, there is an argument to be made that that Trump has changed the rule book, but I don't think it works. I don't think it applies. It, it's it's uh, it, you can't just like transfer it now. Yeah, I mean, and that's that's also true politically in the sense that like, I mean, as you say, his people don't turn out except when he's on the ballot. Remember in 2018, Bannon put all those sort of Trump mini-me's trying to challenge McConnell and the establishment and all that nonsense. And they all failed. And then in 2022, the only one who succeeded was, was Vance, right? 
or no, I should say, yes, it was Vance. Because he was the only one running in a non-battleground state, right? I mean, any any Trump primary endorsee running in a state where, you know, there is there is a thriving Democratic Party, so including Georgia, including Arizona, not including Ohio, lost. They all lost. But J.D. Vance is running in Ohio, which is, it's a red state. I mean, Sherrod Brown kind of has this special relationship with the people of that state that allows him to to, to, to get reelected, and although who knows what's going to happen this year. But that said... And the governor got reelected yeah. by 30 points, and Vance won by like eight. Yeah. So like it, it shows you that the Trumpy stuff was still a drag on it. But, and so, I mean, you're one of these, you know, fancy pants journalists who wears belts and stuff, and I'm one of these crazy right-wingers. But, like, I am coming around to the view that it's very difficult for people to sustain cynical BS for very long before they start believing it, right? No one likes to tell themselves that they're lying. And so, like, what started in 2016 is a transactional thing with Trump. For a lot of people now is a true believer thing. Um, maybe not, you know, like, I, I firmly believe whether this is a harsher criticism or a damning with faint praise thing for, like, I don't think Tim Scott believes the things he says about Donald Trump. But, like, um, for the most part, a lot of these people believe the crap that they're saying at this point. And, and I could live with it for a while because most of it was about BS politics stuff. But now it's like the Ukraine situation is very, very, very bad. And it's dangerous, right? Yeah. It, I mean, it, like NATO is in trouble. This Navalny stuff is bad. And I, a lot of people on the right now think that this is what you're actually supposed to believe. And that's going to take a while to unwind, um, if ever. It's not just that they think it's what you're supposed to believe. They are willing to try to look for reasons why they are acting against their own principles. And you see this with people who are Republicans, who are strong supporters of NATO, big opponents of Putin's Russia, trying to justify not passing aid to Ukraine by looking at the southern border and saying, we need to solve that problem. Yes, the southern border is a mess. Um, and, uh, obviously that's a big problem to say, we're not going to send money to Ukraine until we solve this problem that nobody has been able to solve in any way for the, for decades is setting yourself up to not provide funding for Ukraine, which has actual life or death consequences. Um, Liz Cheney was on my show Sunday on state of the union, and she was very restrained in her criticism of speaker Johnson but basically was trying to appeal to him to bring the foreign aid bill that the Senate passed onto the floor of the House for a vote. Um, even though, as I pointed out, that will mean that members of the House Freedom Caucus challenge his speakership. And she basically said, like, there are things that are more important than being Speaker of the House. Uh, and history is going to judge him. Now, how much... Mike Johnson, Speaker Johnson, heard that message. I, I don't know, A, that he was watching CNN. B, I don't think that the incentives that motivate Liz Cheney are not the incentives that motivate Mike Johnson. I think that's fair to say. Yeah, I think that's 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 a really easy thing for me to say. I think you're right about it. It's a, it's a, that's, me, that's a polite thing to say. Yeah, that's very polite. Because you want you know Speaker Johnson to come on your show. And, He'll come on the and, show. He, I don't think he'd disagree with that notion, but I think she is playing for a, she's looking to history. How am I going to be remembered? Your, your diplomatic statement reminds me, me and some friends, colleagues back in the NR days, we used to joke around about coming up with phrases that sounded like you were complimenting people, but <laughs> really weren't. And, and so with the changing nature of the GOP, and so like the one, only one I really remember is with the election of Ted Cruz, the Republican Party finally has the leadership it deserves. I <laughs> <laughs> was know? calling for uh, McConnell for new leadership the other day because of the border fracas, because the because of what happened with Langford. That's another great example of trying to find reason to stand with Donald Trump on something that you actually disagree with him on. It's and it's been remarkable to watch. Like that, you and I know this. That is 
one of the most conservative border bills. You can you can take issue with it, this, that, whatever, but like one of the most conservative border compromise bills that that has ever passed the Senate, period. It had nothing that the Democrats normally press for, like path to citizenship for the dreamers and this and that. And the contortions about trying to figure out ways to like oppose it are just remarkable. What I what I found remarkable were the number of people who said things like Lanford needs to resign. Oh God. <laughs> because of this this horrible tragedy, you know, this horrible collaboration with the enemy. And it's also unbelievably stupid. Um it's also like like I mean Senator Rubio brought up on my show like his opposition to the fact that people who get asylum ultimately get on a path to citizenship. And um but he wasn't part of the negotiation. And it's like, I mean, they raised they made they made it tougher to get asylum. That's what the bill would have done. And part of me was thinking, and, and I didn't say because we didn't, you know, you don't have enough time to say everything you want, but like, so offer an amendment. <laughs> you have get, a hearing. You can get asylum, but you can't vote. I mean, like, if that's really your issue, a lot of these people, you know, are coming here because they're about to be killed or whatever, the ones who get asylum on a legitimate basis, they're political prisoners or whatever. Like, okay, so offer an amendment saying they can't vote. Like, I mean, like, I don't whatever, like offers, what's the solution to the, to your opposition? Yeah. I mean, uh, but there it's, I mean, it's all pretextual, right? It's, it's Trump doesn't want it. So then you have to just grab something. But I mean, I will say it's very frustrating for me because I think Joe Biden has abused his power, exceeded his constitutional authority and all sorts of things. And whenever I say that about student or tried to student loans, rent, a, you know, a moratorium, all that kind of stuff. I think that's all. I think that stuff is lawless and unjustifiable in, co- in constitutional terms. And every conservative in the world agrees with me on that. Yeah. And then they'll say Biden has the power right now as president to do all these things at the border, and he's just refusing to do them. And the problem is, is that he doesn't, right? And so, like this, I, this, this tendency to think that the Constitution restricts presidents only on the policy areas that you care about or that you agree with them on or that you agree with them on it's it's infuriating and that has not really gotten you know i mean like if if biden had all the power to do this right now and that you know all this stuff wasn't in the langford thing wasn't necessary why didn't the house pass a really tough piece of immigration right, why hr2 why why are you passing hr2 if biden has all the power so it's such a great question and and you know there are things obviously that that biden could do uh, to make it tougher to get in this country. Like, the, you know, he could bring back the remain in Mexico policy. I mean, there are... Things- Although Mexico has to go along with that, right? That's one of the things people keep saying is you should bring that back. Is that, well, okay, go convince Mexico to be in favor of that. Yeah, but there are things. But but as you point out, like, if you don't... If, he, if, if all the power is in the executive branch, A, stop complaining when he does things in the... Uh, when he asserts a se- executive privilege that you don't like or executive powers that you don't agree with and B, why did you pass HR two? Right. Right. And there, there's yeah. no, there's no, we're not in a place where people even like feel the need to give a honest answer. The honest answer to so many of these things on the, well, there's the liberal side and the conservative. So first of all, on the liberal side, like we, for years, liberals in Washington have been saying there is no border crisis. This is just Republican racism. And that's not true. I mean, there is Republican racism, but like there is a border crisis. You have millions of people coming into this country illegally. It creates a, a, a major drain on resources as people in blue cities are now encountering because of whatever you think of it, the stunt that Governor Abbott and to a lesser degree, Governor DeSantis did, sending them to New York, Denver, et cetera. Second of all um, is is the the... the so anyway, so that's the liberal thing. The conservative thing is you're not passing this because Donald Trump wants it as an issue for November. That's the bottom line. You don't want Joe Biden to be able to say, I met with Republicans and I did this compromise. And you don't want the problem to be better. You don't want it alleviated. You want it to be horrible, which is so manifestly awful when you think about all the life and death issues that Republicans and people at the border have brought up that are legitimate, legitimate human trafficking, the the danger of the of the trek, all that stuff. Not to mention the obviously some of the people who get into this country are criminals, et cetera. But like all of that is legitimately horrible. 
now you want to keep it going. You want the status quo to go because of the bill isn't perfect or because Donald Trump wants the issue. Yeah. I mean, so this, this is one of the frustrations. Like, you know, I was at National Review for 20 years. We were pretty hard line on the immigration stuff. I was a little squishier than some of my colleagues, but I was generally sympathetic to their editorial point of view on this stuff. One of the frustrations is that, like, they're doing this because Trump wants the issue, but I'm not sure. The problem is that I'm not sure it's a smart play, right? I mean, like, if they actually passed it and agreed to it, they and then if Biden didn't follow through and actually do the things they want him to do, he'd be in more trouble politically. And if he did the things that they want him to do, Congress would be, the Republicans would say, see, we made him do it. But instead, it's this yeah. kind of like Trump has a theory that this is what he needs. And so they decide to be blindly loyal to a bad theory about strategy. And anyway. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I do want to veer. We don't have a lot much time left. and But, so, look, I've been at CNN now coming up on two years. And I had I played a role in bringing you, and I'm so and I'm so happy, and I hope you feel that uh, that that you're being treated right, and that you know I appreciate it, and I am. Um, you know, uh, it, it, generally it's been a pretty great experience so far, um, and uh, we can talk about the exceptions to the rule off camera. <laughs> <laughs> but um, that said, uh, one of the things I find super frustrating, and I, I just assume you have it at much larger scale, is that. I will hear constantly from people about how crazy left-wing CNN is. And there are only two, there are usually two explanations for it. One is someone, they saw some clip on Newsmax or Fox or wherever of some nut-picking thing where they take one thing out of context and they say, okay, now that's what the whole network is like. Right. Or two, they've just been told by people that CNN is crazy left-wing by Greg Gutfeld or by somebody, and they actually don't watch it at all. Just so you know, people do that on the on the left too. Oh, for sure. Like Fox is not daytime Fox news side. Fox is not nearly. No, as, no. I just mean like there's this um, progressive alternate to Twitter called Blue Sky that I was I joined and then um, it just became a, just as nasty a place, uh, except on the left uh, from the left. And whatever, I just I I just poked my head in yesterday just to see, because uh, I, I haven't posted for months, and I posted and I was like, oh, people accusing me of supporting genocide, you, you know, whatever, just that sort of thing. It's like you don't watch CNN, you don't watch my show. Like we have pieces from Gaza talking about how awful it is for innocent people in Gaza. Like I mean, so so little of this has anything to do with reality. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's. I mean, I, I think cable news is a mixed bag for, for, for American politics, but it is what it is. It's there. Right. And that said, like, it's not cable news doesn't drive narrative anymore. It's fitting into people's narratives. Right. And so they just assume like th they just have just so stories about how the, the media controls everything. Um, but they don't actually pay attention to the media. They don't actually don't watch it. They don't read it. It's like, I remember my first glimpse of this was 15 years ago where the I was speaking at a very right-wing group in Southern California, and people came up to me afterwards and said, you know, it'd be so great if the LA Times would carry your column, but they'd never do that. And I was like, well, I've been in there for like four years at this point. <laughs> and they were like, oh, well, I canceled my subscription Didn't years they ago. they run your you column know? before it was even uh, syndicated? I mean, like... I, I, I've been I've been in the LA Times for like 17 years. Yeah, now, and that's why I first read you. The point is, my point is that they have a theory of what the media is doing. Like all these people saying, oh, bad the new york times is and i have lots of good criticisms of the new york times but i actually read it most of the people who talk about like the new york times or cnn 
or on the left know about Fox, either they only see these tiny little snippets or they don't see it at all. And that makes it it's an exceedingly frustrating thing. And so one of the things I keep trying to tell people is watch CNN, you know, watch Tapper, watch Wolf, you know, watch some of the new shows and get back to me. Um, because I keep running into people saying, well, the media won't cover how old Joe Biden is. <laughs> and it's like, I'd say it's like one in five times I'm on one of these shows. It's a major topic of conversation. And Literally, we, I was covering it in 2020. I mean, like, yeah. it, this isn't, uh, yeah. And it's like, they're just trying to keep it a secret. It's like, what secret? This is the worst kept secret in American public life. You know? it's, it, it, it is, look, I mean, one of the things about media criticism in this day and age is, A, there are actors who are incentivized to just their entire raison d'etre is, is to criticize media. So like I used to think that media research council and newsbusters, I used to think that they were fairly interesting and informative and like actually made me reconsider the way things were taught, uh, uh, reported sometimes, but now they'd say things that are just aren't true. I mean, I, I, I see it or, or like they'll take, one snippet of something and ignore five months of everything else. Like it's, there is so little, I don't mean to pick on newsbusters, although I don't feel bad for them from being picking on them, but like Fox, Newsmax, OANN, if that still exists, all these organizations are, their whole business plan is the other guys are lying and not telling you the whole story. And that depends. So everything they sent, like one time Hannity did a monologue uh, uh, about me and, and he met, he, he like acted as if an interview I had done with Jake Sullivan was like, he was, he was defending Jake Sullivan just like, because that's the business plan, right? Uh, he was defending Sullivan and acting as if I hadn't asked about the hostages. This is like, I think feel like this is October or November of last year. And I had done a whole thing about the hostages in that interview, but he didn't care. I don't even think if he, he probably didn't even know it was probably just like some snip operator on his show. who just put it in there. So there are two problems. One, there is an entire group of people who are out there to discredit the media. This exists to um, a lesser extent on the left. I don't think it's as bad, but maybe I'm wrong. But like, I, I think media matters has had its moments of excess, but generally speaking, I don't think they're, I used to think they were worse than Newsbusters. Now I think they're much more reality-based. They go back and forth. But, um, you know, you can read Olbermann tweets all you want, but that's not the same thing as an entire network the way Fox is. So that's a problem. And then the other problem is the balkanization of media and audiences and the degree to which people for business plans to keep their media organizations alive are have a preaching to the choir mentality that is unhealthy for journalism, unhealthy for democracy. I get attacked for even having you on my show. You know, I get attacked for interviewing Republicans because people who watch maybe another channel never have to watch any Republican ever being interviewed except for Steve Schmidt and Charlie Sykes, you know, and like, okay. Yeah. I mean, I would make, I mean, if we had more time, I'd make the argument that because I used to be the right wing house goy at brill's content do you remember brill's content yeah and um i used to do and I, I would do it up against this guy from fair which i don't know if it still exists it which still does fairness yeah. and accuracy does they're it. not they're not fans of mine either and um i think that generally the 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 left-wing media criticism has to be so far left to find purchase because i do think just the mainstream media to the extent that's a phrase that has yeah, you know, explanatory power anymore is left of center. And so you have to be way left of center to think that like everything you see on CNN is right wing or that you, that, that Chuck Todd is a crazy right winger. Right. And so, um, meanwhile, there's a lot of low hanging fruit. If you're a right wing full-time media critic about stuff that's in the center, my criticism of the, the MRC guys and the newsbuster guys is they used to be extremely useful when they were strictly concentrating on actual reporting, right? When they're, when they're going after people for factual reporting bias kind of stuff. Yeah. Now they're like, can you believe what this left-wing pundit said on a left-wing opinion show? And I was like, yes, because that's what left-wing pundits say on, on opinion shows. And like opinions are not 
like something to get freaked out about. Everyone's got them and there are right wingers with crazy opinions and left wingers with crazy opinions. And that's not media criticism anymore. That's just that's just holding up someone like a Medusa said and saying, see, look how crazy these people are. Exactly. Yeah, no, agreed. And, you know, I the media criticism I find the most uh, informative and illuminating is that which introduces facts or counterfactuals to make me reconsider the way a story is being reported or or even more so, perhaps um, somebody who says, why aren't you covering this story? Um, which is a story that is not getting covered enough. An example, and this is actually from the left in a way, is that there was a horrible incident in Tennessee the other day where a police officer arrested some woman for like disorderly conduct or whatever. And then he was texting while he was driving and he drove his car into a lake or a river and he killed himself and the woman. And uh, it's just this horrible tragedy. And the way that the police announced what happened um, was very like police officer tragically dies, whatever, very ignoring of the woman. And, you know, this was the mom of two kids and like, she didn't, you know, like arguably like, why was she arrested? And it was just very, it was a, just a very, um, you know, there's this thing called copaganda where people who like want to challenge the police, like look at the way that we cover the police, we in the media cover the police in which, uh, they criticize the media. And I hear this criticism as, you know, like, using terms like officer involved shooting. And it's like, you're right. That is a good point. That is a bullshit term. It's obfuscatory. It doesn't mean anything. You know, are you saying that a cop killed somebody? Cause to say that, I mean, anyway, that stuff is helpful, whether from the left or from the right, I find that stuff helpful. And I find, okay, did you, but you know, like, I feel like on the Valerie Plain thing, just to go back to our series, like at the end of the day, the people who leaked her name were Dick Armitage, who was a skeptic of the war in Iraq, who worked for Colin Powell, who was a skeptic of the war in Iraq, to Robert Novak, who was a skeptic in the, of the war in Iraq. He was against the war in Iraq. He said they didn't have WMD and it was an international interest. Those facts do not eliminate the fact that other people leaked her name too, and Carl Rove and whoever else that did it, Libby, whoever shouldn't have done it. And like, she shouldn't have been punished and all that stuff. But that those facts don't fit in with the narrative. And that makes it more interesting, the truth, but also really kind of gets at what our job needs to be, which is just calling balls and strikes and letting people understand what's going on. All right, that's as good as place as any to get you out of here on time. Um, I hope you'll come back. Uh, anytime. Uh, you know, I wanted to circle back to the, because you brought up this whole fascist after school special thing. The wave. Google the it. The wave. Um, you know, uh, I'm not a big fan of the New Deal. I think there were some similarities with what was going on in Europe at the time. And uh, one of the things I disliked the most about the New Deal was this thing called the Blue Eagle program, which was this rah-rah nationalist program that, uh, basically indoctrinated kids in schools, had military parades around the country. I can give you chapter and verse on it. And uh, something I've always been meaning to point out to you is that is where the Philadelphia Eagles get their name. Is that true? From this, yes, from this fascistic New Deal program called the Blue Eagle. And um, I'll send you some paperwork on this. But Eagle helmet right there. Eagle ball right there. Another Eagle helmet right there. Confetti from the Super Bowl in 2018 right there. You're calling me a fascist and I will. No, I will I, embrace, I'm pointing I will out it. that there is a, there's a troubling history here. But at the same time, this is one of these things that Americans need to come to grips with is that you can have bad things in the past and imbue new meaning into these things that doesn't necessarily make you, a you know, doesn't like you didn't know. Right. So like like the whole structural racism thing says that you had perfect knowledge about the legacy of the Blue Eagle. And, you know, you didn't. And that's why I did not know. I did not know, but that does not change my mission, which is to make sure that both Kelsey brothers marry Ta Taylor Swift during the next Super Bowl and as they do endorse Joe Biden, as is my instructions from the deep state. That's right. And while self-vaccinating. Well, clearly they're going to have vaxes. Right. Going on. Maybe they should have drones sprinkle vax 
on the fans, you know, so they can... Drones and black helicopters and tinfoil, everything. Just break it all out. All right. Jake Tapper, thanks so much for doing this, and uh, we'll have you back. Thanks. Okay, so Jake Tapper has left the studio, and um, it was good to have him back on. Hopefully we'll get him back on um, some more. I should note, as just sort of a commercial, um, you know, he was here to promote his um, thing, which does... I'm sorry I missed the first episode. does sound pretty great. He was telling me some stories out of school about it. Um, It's called The United States of Scandal. It premiered last Sunday, but it'll be on um, every Sunday uh, through March 24th. You know, some of the stuff he was talking about, about calling balls and strikes and all that kind of thing. And that's one of the reasons why we launched the dispatch. We kind of think the balls and strikes model is, it's a useful metaphor. It's a useful way of thinking about things, but it's not entirely satisfactory. And so one of the things that, we like to do is be completely honest about where our priors are and all these things. We're a, we're a right of center news outlet and we don't deny it, but we also, um, are pretty passionate about not carrying water for anybody. And we call BS on Republicans all the time. Um, and we try to make the best arguments possible in our opinion side or analysis side. Um, but we're fact driven more than anything else. And if you're new to this podcast or if you're not a subscriber, um, please check us out at thedispatch.com, and we think you'll like. You'll, we think the subscription is um, a really phenomenal value, and it is. Uh, we provide something that is sorely missing out there. And with that, uh, thanks again to Jake for for coming on. And um, I'm home home alone. My wife's out of town, so I'm just dealing with with dogs and cat and drama. Um, and I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.